Well, let me uh, invite you to take your uh, copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're returning uh, to our series today uh, in 1 Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Uh, You may remember that Paul is dealing with the, the problems that uh, a misunderstanding of Christian freedom can bring to a church. And so in verses uh, 1 through 13, he, he deals with the problem of presumption. Uh, the Corinthians were in danger of thinking themselves free to live any way they pleased. Uh, now in verses 14 through 22, he's going to deal with the problem of compromise in the Christian life, of uh, following Jesus all the while dabbling with the world. And then in the remaining verses of chapter 10, Paul is going to deal with the problem of legalism, uh, unnecessary restrictiveness and the problems that it brings. And so these are the the three big things that Paul is addressing throughout this chapter. Presumption, compromise, and legalism. And today we're going to think about compromise in verses 14 through 22, and you'll see in just a moment that Paul deals with compromise uh, in the context of communion, which is maybe not what you'd expect. He starts talking about the Lord's Supper, and maybe on first reading you're you're asking, what's up with this? What's Paul trying to do here? But this is what he talks about in verses 14 through 17. We're going to consider this passage under two headings, two simple headings, verses 14 through 17, the wonder of communion. And then in verses 18 through 22, the weight of compromise. Uh, So let's go ahead and and give our attention to the reading and hearing of God's word. 1 Corinthians 10, let's pick it up in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, there's something about a meal, isn't there, that brings people together. It's part of our, our culture. That uh, one of the ways we express love and affection for people in our lives is by sharing a meal with them. Having them over, sitting down at the table and Sharing a meal is one way we say to someone, we, we care about you. We are, we are bound together in some sense. 
And that was very much the case in Paul's day as well, when uh, who you ate with was about your, your loyalties, your associations, your connections and relationships. Having a meal established a bond that is perhaps even more profound in certain ways than it is today in our own culture. But we still understand something of this, especially perhaps when it comes to a betrayal in a relationship. So think of you know, the wife whose husband says, honey, I'm going to be at the office all day, and she finds out that in fact around lunchtime he's going out and having lunch with another woman. You see, that, that meal, it, it, it illustrates a potential betrayal, a disloyalty, a new connection being formed that could compromise the relationship. Or, or think of another context, the business partner who is having regular lunches with his partner's major competitor. Well, that time together could certainly imperil the relationship, couldn't it? The partnership. There's disloyalty and new loyalty being established. You see, who you eat with speaks about loyalties and fellowships and the bond of relationship. And we get all that, I think. And that was very much... Uh, the background to everything that Paul is saying here in verses 14 through 22. It's the operating assumption behind these verses. One of the things that Paul is teaching us here is that these sacred meals, whether they were meals in the church or pagan meals in temples throughout Corinth, these meals established a bond between the worshiper and the spiritual reality that was being invoked through the meal. And so the concern in the background here is it's, it's idolatry. You can see that very clearly if you look down at verse 13, where he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's his concern. And so everything Paul is saying in this section is, is designed uh, to show why this is so urgent and so necessary for the Corinthian Christians. This is his, his counsel in the face of idolatry. Don't don't dabble with it. Don't play around with it. Run away. Get out of there. And notice, too, the way that he argues as he tries to persuade them to, to flee idolatry. He does not appeal here to their emotions. He does not make some sort of uh, appeal to get them to respond emotively. He does not give them a list of pragmatic or self-serving reasons why they should avoid idolatry. He instead appeals to their reason. You see that in verse 15? I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Saying, think it through. Check, check the scriptures. Use your reason and submission to the revelation God has given to us. See if what I am saying to you now is what God is saying in his Testimony. Paul understands that you see so many of our problems, so much of the sin and compromise in our lives occurs not always just as a result of wrongheaded thinking, though that can certainly be true, but very often it is the result of not really thinking at all, of uh, just kind of going along with the flow, of uh, following the herd 
or we might say today, following your heart. And before we know it, we've made all kinds of compromises. We've, we've made a mess of it, and, and there's this disaster. And so Paul wants us to think it through. He wants us to reason along the grain of Scripture. And so with this, this exhortation to think and reason biblically, Let's take a look at Paul's argument uh, together this morning. Notice where he begins in verses 16 and 17. So the concern is idolatry. If you didn't know this passage, where do you think Paul's going to go from here? Probably not where he goes. Uh, he starts talking about the Lord's Supper to talk about, eventually, how idolatry is very dangerous. But he starts not talking, first of all, about idols. He starts talking about communion. Take a look. Verses 16 and 17, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so Paul is teaching us here that the Lord's Supper involves a real spiritual bond. Paul calls it a participation, um, a fellowship. And notice as well, he says that it occurs along two planes. First, Paul teaches us it involves a fellowship, a communion, a participation with Jesus Christ in his body and blood. So there is this, what we'll call vertical plane. But also in verse 17, Paul teaches us that there is a horizontal dimension to this as well. We are, though many, one in Jesus Christ, as we eat from the one loaf. And so the meaning of the Lord's Supper, it, it travels along these these two planes simultaneously, both the vertical and the horizontal. So let's think about both of them in turn. And let's, let's begin, first of all, with the vertical. Paul uses the word participation to describe what is happening in verses uh, 16 through 20. He actually uses the same Greek word four times. It is a key fundamental word for what he understands is taking place at the Lord's Supper. It is, uh, it's the Greek word koinonia, which is sometimes translated otherwise as, as fellowship, uh, sharing, uh, or communion. It's one of the reasons we call the Lord's Supper a communion meal, because we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself when we come to the Lord's table by faith. You see, this is, this is why we believe uh, here at Trinity, it's one of the reasons why we believe that the Lord's Supper is not a bare memorial meal, where we are you know, simply remembering an absent or, or distant Christ, where we're, we're merely reflecting on what Christ has done for us in the past. We're just remembering his death. Now, for sure, Remembrance, properly understood, is a key part of the Lord's Supper. It's what the Lord Jesus commands we, we do in eating the bread and drinking the cup. By taking those outward elements into ourselves, we are remembering the Lord's death until he comes. 
But there's much more to it than that. And Paul is highlighting that there is a mysterious, even supernatural reality taking place when believers come to the Lord's table by faith. And they eat the bread and drink the cup together. Now, you, you know this if, if you're here regularly, but it's worth repeating. The bread and the cup do not turn into anything. No change takes place in them. They remain ordinary bread and ordinary wine. But in the mysterious but real work of the Holy Spirit, Christ himself is communicated to believers as we eat and drink. We enjoy fellowship with the incarnate, risen, glorified Christ. And we are nourished by the virtue of his body and blood. We commune with Christ. He feeds us. He nourishes us with himself. Jesus puts it in these terms in John chapter 6, verse 53. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, there's a great deal of mystery in those words. Sometimes Christians try to remove the mystery and explain it all away and make it a little less uncomfortable. After all, it's a little bit weird to talk about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. Is it any wonder that the early Christians were accused of being cannibals? See, we want to sanitize it a little bit. We want, to, we want what Jesus is saying to fit within our established, neat and tidy theological categories. And so some people say that eating his flesh and drinking his blood just means believing in Jesus. That's all he means. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is just another way of talking about, it's just code for having faith in Jesus Christ. And again, for sure, faith, trust in Jesus is fundamental and necessary for all that Jesus is saying here. But Jesus seems to be saying more than that, doesn't he? And we shouldn't shy away from the language of the Bible out of fear that it will be misunderstood. Jesus seems to be saying precisely what Paul is saying in the context of communion. And that means that in a mysterious way, when we come by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ to the Lord's table, we enjoy Christ himself. We participate in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so just as food and drink is nourishment to our bodies, so we are nourished by Jesus, who is true food and true drink for our souls. We are sustained by him, and, and helped heavenward through him who is our life. He is our sustenance and our satisfaction. And so there's this, this wonderful vertical dimension to the Lord's Supper. We have communion with the risen Christ when we come by faith to the Lord's table. 
But at the same time, simultaneously, there's this, this other plane that we need to consider, the horizontal dimension as well. We commune with Christ and with one another in Christ. See, there's this one another component to the Lord's Supper. We have communion, not just with Jesus, but because we are one with Jesus Christ, we also have communion with each other. Verse 17, look at what Paul says there. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, it looks like that when they, the Corinthians celebrated the Lord's Supper, it appears that there was a single common loaf of bread. And in the celebration of the supper, the, the bread was broke and each received a morsel of the bread from the one loaf. And Paul is saying that that sacramental action, that action in communion conveys a spiritual reality conveys theological truth because we partake of the one bread, which is the sign of our communion with Christ himself. We are in fact one body. We are one, not just with Jesus, but because we are one with him, we are also one with one another. Now, grasping, trying to take in these two aspects of the Lord's Supper, the, the vertical and the horizontal I think if we really take in what Paul is saying, it will radically shape our attitude and our approach when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Don't you think that's the case? When you think about what Paul is saying here, it matters. It matters for the way that we come to the table of the Lord. Think it through with me. If this is simply an aid to refresh our memories and nothing more than that. If, if all the bread and wine do is point us backwards to the cross. Well, friends, is it any wonder then that some Christians begin to think that they can do just fine without the Lord's Supper? That they don't really need it in their Christian lives. If all the bread and wine do is remind us as, as mere props. Well, once we think that we've grasped the message of the gospel, we might wonder what benefit it really offers to us. Why do, we, why do we keep doing this over and over and over again? Pastor, we get it already. Let's move on. Well, what if, this is a big what if, what if communion is much more than a mere exercise of our memory? What if through the broken bread and wine provided, there's also something supernatural taking place? And what if more important than our action, our remembering, our meditating, our pondering, what if more important than our action is God's action, who by the Holy Spirit communicates Jesus Christ himself to all those who come by faith to the table? What if, what if we really are, in a mysterious but real sense, communing with Jesus himself in heaven, when we come to the table, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who unites things in heaven and on earth. Well, if that's the case, that ought to change a lot about the way in which we come to the table then, right? In terms of our attitude and our approach. If, if we really begin to embrace the, the mystery, wouldn't, wouldn't we come to communion with 
greater eagerness and greater expectation? Wouldn't we, wouldn't we be reluctant to miss out on a meal with Jesus? And if somebody came along and said to you, hey, um, I, I want to bring you along to share a meal with Jesus Christ. <laughs> you'd drop everything and you'd make sure you'd get there. Well, dear friends, that is happening every time we come by faith to the Lord's table. We are communing with Christ and he is preparing the table for us. Christ meets us here and he meets us here to give himself to us, to nourish and sustain his people. And with that in mind, doesn't, doesn't that make you want to come to the table with a renewed sense of, of urgency and necessity saying, I am weak. I am a weak and needy sinner. I think it was Morgan who said in the opening prayer how prone we are to go astray. And we're able to come to the Lord's table and say, I need you, Lord Jesus. I need more of Christ in my life. And he offers himself to us here through the ministry of his word read and preached and through the ministry of his word seen, touched, and tasted. And if we come to the table together, thinking now about the horizontal aspect of this, if we partake of the one bread and we are bound together as one body, that certainly has implications too, doesn't it? You see, we're not really here for quiet time in the middle of a worship service. This is a shared meal. This is a meal that we share. We, we are here, Paul is teaching us in part, to renew our fellowship and to strengthen our bonds with one another. To say, I belong to you and you belong to me in Christ Jesus and together we belong to him. This is a family meal, a family table. And families who eat together are bound together. You know, I think, I think if I can offer just a little bit of pastoral reflection on implications of this in our own context. I think one of the temptations that we have to resist, and there are historical reasons for it within our own Reformed tradition. One of the temptations we have to resist is radical individualism when it comes to communion. Thinking about communion in a merely individualistic way would lead us, that, it would lead us to believe that in order to get the most out of communion, we have to kind of shut everybody else and everything else out so that we can have our own private time with Jesus. We need to reflect and meditate without any interruption internally, inwardly, uh, with Jesus. I actually, I think, in light of what Paul is saying and what the Bible teaches as a whole about covenantal meals, that that's actually the opposite of what Paul is saying should take place during the Lord's Supper. This is a family table. It is a meal that is given to us in order to be shared. And the way that we do it ought to communicate visibly, tangibly. We are one. We are bound together in Christ in the bonds of love. 
And it ought to say, I am yours and you are mine. We are the one people of God. Everything that would communicate that at a family table, dear friends, is appropriate at the table of our Lord. Communion is not a memorial service for a dead and gone Jesus. It is a communion meal with Jesus and his people. And that is why celebration is precisely the right description. We are not mourning over Jesus' dead body here. We are rejoicing that Christ who was crucified, dead and buried, lives and reigns. And we have fellowship with him today. Paul really wants us to see here the, the wonder of communion. It is not something that first of all we do for God. Right? Some tool that we use to help ourselves think about Jesus. It is first of all something God does in Christ by the Holy Spirit for us. We need to understand that. Mysteriously, yes, but supernaturally and really, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup in faith, Christ meets us here and gives himself to his people. And it expresses something that, that ought to be practically lived out every day in the life of our church, that we belong to one another. And so we love one another, we serve one another, we pray for one another, we seek to bear one another's burdens, we don't divide over trivial things because we are one body in Christ Jesus. See, this is the one another celebration which equips us to live out all of the one another commands that our Lord Jesus gives us in the New Testament. We are given to each other in order to better one another, to serve one another, to care for one another, to, to love and pray for one another and bear one another's burdens. And at the Lord's Supper, those bonds are meant to be renewed, deepened, and strengthened. And so that's the wonder of communion. I'm tempted to stop right there and go straight to the Lord's table, but we need to continue on with the rest of this passage, because there's an important connection here then with the weight of compromise. This is where Paul is headed. If you look at verses 18 through 22, Paul has established that this simple meal of a loaf and bread and a cup of wine is not an empty ritual, that there is something real and profound, spiritual taking place, fellowship with Christ, fellowship with the body of Christ. And now that that's established, He's saying the same also goes for other sacred meals that were taking place in pagan temples. So exhibit A, the people of Israel. Paul mentions them here as he's done repeatedly throughout this chapter to this point. Paul appeals to Israel's experience to draw a parallel to the experience of the new covenant people of God. And he's recalling, I think, their experience in coming out of Egypt, being brought out of Egypt, and falling into sin and idolatry. In verse 18, Paul is likely alluding to Exodus 32. You remember where Moses is up on the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments, and uh, Israel's down below at the base of the mountain, and they're getting impatient, and eventually they say, hey, Aaron, um, 
We don't know what Moses is doing up there, but will you go ahead and make for us uh, an, a statue in order that we can worship? And so he fashions for them a golden calf, and they build an altar in front of it. And in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Paul says that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play as part of their worship before the altar. And I think Paul is warning them that just as communion is not an empty ritual, neither is eating at the altar of idols an empty or insignificant thing. Those who eat at the altar participate in what the altar signifies and, and means, something, something sinister and, and wicked. That was true for Israel in the wilderness. It was true for the Christians in Corinth. And it can be true for us today. Now you might remember when we were back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, Paul agreed with the Corinthians that you know, idols are nothing more than blocks of wood and stone. Right? They've got no real life in them. They're no real gods at, at all. And so you might wonder, if you remember that, you know, is, Paul, is Paul kind of contradicting himself here? Is he implying that idols are in fact real after all? And I think Paul anticipates that potential objection. If you look at verse 19, that's why he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he, he's affirming, an, an idol is nothing, but there are evil spiritual forces at work in idolatry throughout the world. And as a consequence, idolatry is not harmless. There's no such thing as Apollo or uh, Krishna or Shiva or Allah or any of the other false gods that have been invented by human superstition over the ages. See, Paul is saying the God that you create for yourself is not the God who is there. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we dabble in idolatry, Paul says that standing behind the deception is a real spiritual presence. Satan and demonic powers. I know, I, I feel it myself. In our day, we're, we're just tempted to kind of dismiss this and set it aside. We think ourselves too modern, uh, too sophisticated, too knowledgeable to believe in something like the demonic. And that by participating in idolatrous practices that we are, you know, in cahoots with demonic forces. Well, here were the Corinthians coming to worship on the Lord's Day, sitting at the Lord's table Sunday after Sunday. And then on Monday, they would go to the temple of Apollo or the temple of Artemis for a meal. And at the start of the meal, a sacrifice would be made to whichever God was being invoked. Uh, and the Corinthians were saying to themselves, they were justifying all of this by saying, well, you know, we know that an idol is nothing, that there is no God called Apollos or Apollo. So, you know, no, no harm, right? And Paul is saying, beloved, not so fast. Not so fast. Paul says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord 
and the table of demons. Say, don't kid yourself that you can buddy up with the world and faithfully follow the Lord Jesus at the same time. There will inevitably be compromise. Don't don't deceive yourself into believing that practices rooted in idolatry are nothing. Saying it's not harmless. It's not harmless fun. It's not a way to pass the time. It's not a, a means of practical wisdom or valid wisdom for your life. It is an expression of idolatry. And behind it, there are evil spiritual forces at work leading people astray. And so Paul is saying, dear brothers and sisters, have nothing to do with it. And just in case we take this lightly, Paul goes on to share what God thinks of believers dabbling in idolatry. What response does it evoke in God? Verse 22, I think, is a very sobering thing. Paul asks, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, dear friends, our God is, he's a, he's a jealous God. In the first five books of the Bible, it speaks very frequently of the jealousy of God, always in relationship to and connection with idolatry, the idolatry of his people. Now, we tend to think of jealousy only as a vice and never as a virtue. And certainly jealousy can go wrong in all kinds of ways. But there is such a thing as righteous and proper jealousy, isn't there? Now, what if uh, somebody just approached Kelsey, a guy, and started hitting on her, making a move on her, and there I am just standing by watching, listening to the whole thing, and somebody asks, hey, what, what do you think of this? Ah, no big deal. Have, have fun. You'd say, what's wrong with you? Wouldn't you? I hope you would. So don't you, don't you love your wife? Don't you care about the relationship? You see, there is a place for proper jealousy. And when it comes to God's people, this is the kind of jealousy that God has for us. He is, first of all, jealous for his own glory. He alone is worthy of our devotion, and he will not share us with another. In the Old Testament, the Lord is often identified as the bridegroom of his people. And his people are identified as his beloved bride, and he is jealous for her. And in the light of the first coming of Christ, we are, we are reminded of the lengths to which the Lord would go in order to redeem us for himself. Christ is the bridegroom of his people, and from heaven he came to earth for his bride and died. He laid down his life for her. He poured out his blood to redeem her. See, we are betrothed to him and bound to him as a bride to her husband. And that is what makes idolatry such a heinous thing. Because idolatry for God's people is adultery. That's the problem with it. When we play around with idols, we are playing the adulteress. And we provoke our bridegroom to a holy jealousy. But think about this in, in the light of what we started with, the wonder of communion. We need to see these two things together and ask ourselves the question as we close, 
Why would we ever want to eat at another's table when Christ himself is available to us as we eat and drink in faith? Right? Christ and all of his benefits given to sustain us and nourish us. Christ who is sufficient for every need of your heart. Why would we look to anyone or anything else for what we need? See, Christ and all of his benefits are available to us here. And the word read and preached and the word made visible to be seen and touched and smelled and tasted. Christ and all of his benefits are all that we need. So brothers and sisters, don't play around with idolatry. Come to the table of the Lord today to dine with Christ. And to receive from him all that you will ever need. Let's come today and commune with our Savior as we fellowship with one another around the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the means of grace that you have provided for us. Uh, as uh, part of the church of Jesus Christ, we thank you that you use these ordinary things to do extraordinary things in our lives. We thank you that by coming to this table, believing the gospel, embracing Christ, that Christ himself is, is present here today in the word preached, in the word uh, offered to us in the bread and the cup. And we pray that as we come in faith that we would know afresh the privilege of communion with Jesus Christ, that he would nourish us, and that as we do so, our bonds of fellowship in Christ Jesus would be strengthened. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.